0: Please turn your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As you are turning there, see if you can complete some of these common sayings. First one, an apple a day keeps the... Oh, you're so quick. Don't judge a book by its cover. Two wrongs don't make a right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Where there's a will, there's a way. And where there's smoke, there's fire. The pen is mightier than the sword, the sword. boy. These are very common, aren't they? <laughs> when in Rome, do as uh, Or perhaps when in Vegas, what happens in Vegas? Yeah, for the record, that's we're going to call that bad counsel. <laughs> when the going gets tough, and all's fair in in love and war. Uh, we probably don't often think of just how many sayings like this we have in our culture, and yet you all knew them, it seems, but we use them or hear others saying them all the time, don't we? So much so that we might not even have thought through whether the counsel in them is good or bad. It's just always what we've heard. And certainly, some of these sayings, these proverbs, if you will, are helpful. Some of them, not so much. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 12 through 20, the Apostle Paul is going to do some work to recalibrate the thinking of the Corinthian believers concerning three of their sayings. And these may or may not have a ring to them. As I say them to you, remember, we're translating from Greek to English, so the rhyme and meter might be lost, but these are the three sayings that Paul is going to address. Number one, all things are lawful for me. Uh, This is sort of like a more modern phrase, be the captain of your own ship. And of course it means basically, I can do whatever I want. It's my life, and I'm going to live it however I want. Or if you want to Christianize that, uh, if I misunderstand the gospel... And believe that Christ died on the cross simply to give me a free pass on sin. Now I can do whatever I want and get away with it. All things are lawful for me. Number two, second phrase. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. A similar phrase today might be, if it feels good, do it. Statement three. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. And this one's a little harder to decipher, but the idea behind it, uh, what the Corinthians would have meant when they said this, is this. Your body is not the essence of who you are. It's just the physical matter. It's the prison that you live within. So spirit takes precedence over body. Therefore, whatever it does, whatever the body does, is neither right or wrong. Or, the body is just intrinsically evil, it always does evil, so it doesn't matter what you do with it. And now, I'm not endorsing this saying, of course. It's actually terrible logic. But the point of this statement was to excuse the things a person might want to do with their bodies. They could commit, commit sinful acts and just say, uh, What? It's just a physical body. And sins are committed apart from The body. Does that make sense? Uh, While there may not be many people today that would utilize this kind of spiritualized version of this excuse, we do have a very similar mindset that's growing steadily in our culture in the context of atheism. And it's this. If there is no God, then if there is no judge, and if all we are is just biological matter tissue, if all we are is just intelligent mammals, then what does it matter? What we do with our bodies. So different philosophical foundations, uh, one spiritual, one um, non-spiritual, if you will, but the same results, right? My body is just a clump of matter. I'm going to do with it what I want. Okay, now I hope you've recognized these three particular sayings, these Corinthian or even these Roman proverbs, are not helpful All things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the belly and the belly for food. Every sin committed is outside the body. These are not great words to live by. But I hope hope you also understand that this passage is saying much more. It's saying much more than don't be a glutton and don't be sexually immoral. And while those truths are certainly truths and are certainly in this passage, they are not the whole reason why God gave us this passage. And they are certainly not the only areas where we can apply what we're going to learn today. And if all we talked about in this passage today was two or three things you'd better not do, then we'd miss the bigger picture, and we'd miss the motivation to do the right thing at all. We don't want to miss those things. So just like in the first half of 1 Corinthians 6, which we talked about last week, There's going to be uh, something not to do in this passage. And just like in the first half of 1 Corinthians 6, there's going to be great truths and promises that make it very clear to us, Christians, why it wouldn't make any sense at all for us to want to pursue these sinful practices. In verses 1 through 11, Paul reminded the Corinthian believers that they had been washed, They had been sanctified. They had been justified in the name of Jesus. And reiterating these truths about sanctification from earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, church, we have been set apart by God. We have been made holy. We have been placed together in this group that is the body of Christ. Paul reminded the church that they were a part of a special group And therefore, it didn't make any sense for them to go to others who had not been washed, who had not been sanctified or justified. People who did not have the word of God, who did not have the spirit of God. It didn't make any sense to go ask people who remained dead in their trespasses and sins how to live in Christ. And so do you see uh, how that truth could apply to many more aspects of life than just don't take your brothers and sisters to civil court. It certainly gives us reason to not take our brothers and sisters to court, but it also gives us reason to reconsider where we get our counsel from, where we get our marriage advice, where we get our financial coaching, even maybe where we get our New Year's weight loss motivation from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God has either given us everything we need for life and godliness, or he hasn't. And if we really think the world has better advice in all these areas than God does, well, maybe we don't know the Word of God quite like we think we do. Or maybe we don't believe in it or rely upon it as much. Maybe we don't have as much faith in it as we think we do. Now, in the same way, as we look through this passage today, we're going to find these truths that will help us to do much more, not less, but more than the commands of don't be a glutton and don't commit sexual immorality. And again, don't be a glutton and don't commit sexuality are good commands. We should obey them. But to limit our response and application to only these two areas would cut this passage short. We would be missing the bigger picture. Paul's using these two areas of sin as examples, knowing his original intended audience, the struggles of the church at Corinth. And if we really take in and understand the truths that God is teaching us in this passage, the effects of it will go even further, as certainly it would have for the Corinthian church, than just those two areas of application. Does that make sense? So we want to hear the truths behind the reasoning uh, for our growth and edification. So with all of this in mind, let's dig in. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. But, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So here's the first saying. All things are lawful for me. And notice the pattern, and we'll see this later too. There's the saying, there's but, and then there's Paul's response. Okay, And in this, all things are lawful for me, Paul gives two responses. He counters the same saying with two different responses. So the first one, not all things are helpful. Helpful could be meaning to the advantage of another, to the benefit of another. This is love. This is love. Giving of myself sacrificially for the benefit, for the advantage in order to help another. And what are the two greatest commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. So then, even if, even if you could be the captain of your own ship and follow your heart wherever it leads you, even if you could do whatever you want thinking seemingly without consequence, how could you do all that and love others? How can you reconcile doing whatever you like whenever you want and sacrificing of yourself for the good of others? And the answer is, you can't. You can't. For example, we don't always feel like going to work, especially tomorrow morning. But our families need to eat. They need clothing. They need shelter. Uh, The business needs to stay productive and efficient and to make good products so that everyone employed by or in business with them can put food on their tables, We need to love our neighbors and our families and go to work, whether I feel like it or not. Remember, sin is an act of autonomy. And the opposite of love, giving of myself for the benefit of another, is to take from others what I believe to be my own benefit in my lust and my selfishness. So just as easily as saying, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, Paul could have also said, all things are lawful for me, but never without consequence for others. The question is, are the consequences good consequences or bad? There will be consequences. Rebuttal number two. Paul's second response is this. I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be dominated by anything. And dominated could be translated as mastered, as in being enslaved. So Paul is referring here to the idea that we as Christians are no longer slaves. We are no longer in bondage to our sin. He writes it this way in Romans 6. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, just hang on for a second. What does the statement, all things are lawful for me, sound like? We might say it sort of sounds like freedom, doesn't it? I can do whatever I want. kind of sounds like freedom. But what has Paul just called it? Slavery. Slavery, the very opposite. Remember, all things are lawful for me is a saying, a cultural proverb. It is not a fact. And scripture is teaching us here that if my motto in life is, I can do whatever I want, and I want to sin, what am I? Am I free? No. No. I'm a slave. I'm a slave still being mastered by, being dominated by, being enslaved to sin. Sin has control of me. It is the master of my heart, the ruler of my desires. And that's why, think about this now, that's why the unrepentant sinner feels like, feels like he's found His freedom. Or found his groove in life. Living in sin. It feels right. Why? Because he is obeying his master. That's why he feels like he's in his right place. So lawlessness is not freedom. Being able to say no. And say yes to righteousness. That's freedom. Think about this now. Maybe you've seen the movies in Aladdin. When the genie is wished to be free, near the end of the movies, when he's given... I should say the book reference, but I didn't. When he's given his freedom, some of you might know this, how does he test his new freedom? He asks Aladdin to make a wish, to demand something from him, and after Aladdin makes his wish, the genie who now isn't a genie, his identity's changed, but they still call him that. When Aladdin makes his wish, the genie yells out, No! And then he laughs and has a blast, right? And why is that such a big deal? It's because he'd never been able to do that before. He was enslaved. He had a master. And he had to say yes to whatever his master told him to do. He knew he was free when he was able to say no to that master. Okay? So Christian freedom or liberty is not the ability to do wrong and get away with it. That always has been and always will be an impossibility. Freedom is the ability to say no The ability to say no to what once enslaved us. And then to say yes to something to someone else. Now, verse 13. This is the second saying. Verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. And there's more than one contrast going on here, all pointed to the same truth. Uh, the saying itself is simply communicating, if food goes in tummies, and if tummies enjoy having food in them, then put food in tummies. Make sense? But as Paul points out, there's not, uh, they're not simply using this figure of speech to excuse their gluttony, are they? Uh, the contrasting statement he makes is this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Do you see the connection? What the Corinthians were saying is, since stomachs are made for food, put food in there, and since bodies are made to have sex, let's use them to have sex. But it wasn't sex inside of marriage that they were after. The figure of speech was used to glorify gluttony, and it was used to glorify sexual promiscuity, immorality. Uh, the second contrast starts with the phrase, God will destroy both one and the other, which could be used kind of like um, a YOLO today. Okay, You only live once, so your body's going to die, so live it up while you can. Eat whatever you want, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. And Paul contrasts this wrong thinking with the response, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Christian, Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, and we're all next. Amen? Our bodies were not made for selfish, destructive pleasures, to live hard, to burn out, to vaporize, but for something much bigger and much better. And here's how we would put these verses into the same format as the first set in verse 12. Remember, verse 12 was, all things are lawful for me, but, not all things are helpful, but I will not be dominated by anything. And now in verse 13, it'd be this. The saying is, you say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, but the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Our bodies were not made to be instruments of sin. They were made to be instruments for the Lord. And if we were to take these uses of the word body— to refer to us as a whole, which is totally possible in this context as well, then Paul would be saying, this body, the church, is made to be an instrument for the Lord. Either interpretation should result in the same applications. And we can see why in verse 15. We'll look there. Do you not know that your bodies, so that's each one of us individually, are members of Christ? Members literally means body parts. Arms, legs, eyes, nose, different components that make up the body. Then he says this, and this is the part that really punches. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Unthinkable! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So, a couple things to consider here. First, we might read these verses and think, Whoa, Paul! Did you have to go straight to prostitution here? A little extreme, a little fast. And the answer to that for these Corinthians is no, not too fast. It's super helpful to know that prostitution back then was very much a part of their uh, pagan worship. Prostitution was not illegal, it was worship these people would go to the temple in the city, and instead of, say, buying a lamb or a turtle dove for a sacrifice, like the Jews did, they paid for a prostitute, and that was their act of worship to appease the gods and perhaps get whatever it is they wanted from them. That's just terrible. But that's the life these new Corinthian believers were coming out of as they entered into the church. And that we need to think about that too, revealing some blind spots in our own hearts. Uh, those aren't things that we've dealt with in America, are they? We don't have that kind of temple in Mount Pleasant. But we have some other things. And we may be blind to them just as much as the Corinthians were blind to their old life and their old habits. So Paul teaches them, he reminds them, that God set up sexual union to be for the husband and wife. This quote in uh, verse 16 is from Genesis 2. Remember, Adam had seen the rest of creation and saw that there was no one uh, to be with him. God said that this wasn't good. He took one of Adam's ribs, knocked him out, made Eve, not in that order. He knocked him out, took one of his ribs, made Eve. And when Adam woke up, God brought Eve to Adam and he said, THIS! I'd like to read it that way. All day before, right? Or all that day, naming all those animals. Nobody for him. He wakes up. God brings Eve. This! At last! The joy of seeing his bride. At last! This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God established the covenant of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast. Hold fast hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So when the husband and wife come together physically, they become one. One. They're united together. Uh, But then Paul goes on to express this other aspect of unity. We all, every believer, has been united in Christ. When you uh, repented, When you put your faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your salvation, when you were saved by God's grace through Christ, you were baptized, put into, immersed into the body of Christ. You became united with him. We, church, are united together in him. So Paul is taking these truths, the unity of the body of Christ and the unity that comes from the physical union of the man and the woman, and with them he makes a very concise and direct statement. And he doesn't say it in a coarse way, but it's hard to think about. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? That's his question. Would it make sense, any sense, if Jesus himself went into this pagan temple and purchased a prostitute and became one flesh with her. And we would say, that would never happen! No way! Unthinkable! How can you even suggest such a thing? And to that, Paul would respond, exactly. You get it. Any one of you, any one of us, committing sexual immorality should sound just as out of place and inappropriate as if someone would say that Jesus did it himself. Because we all have been united together with him. So, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Run. And now here's the third saying that Paul contends with. Moving on to saying three. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Sins are committed outside the body, not in the body or of the body. Remember, they had divided the material and the immaterial parts of ourselves, the body and the spirit, so much so that they excused acts that were done with the body as somehow not having anything to do with their spirit, their true selves. But Paul says, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. They were saying, the body is nothing and therefore cannot commit sin. And Paul said, sexual immorality is sin against your own body. It's kind of funny that he didn't just say, yes, it can. (laughs) As in when they say, the body is nothing and therefore it can't sin. And Paul would respond and say, oh, yes, it can. Instead, he raises it up another notch. Not only can your body sin, your body and spirit are in fact connected. You are a whole person. When your body is doing wrong or right, you are doing wrong or right. Not only can your body sin, but you can sin against your own body. When you hurt your body, you hurt you. And when you hurt someone else's body, you hurt them. But then think back. Think back through the context of this passage. What all has the body referred to today? Now, there's our physical bodies. Can I sin in such a way that I hurt myself? Yes. There's the union of marriage. If I sin, am I hurting myself and Jess? Yes. A husband and wife, if one sins, are both hurt? Yes. And there's the union of the body of Christ. When you and I sin, are we hurting this church? And the answer is, yes. Yes. So, can we agree that Paul has been pretty, pretty clear in these verses? Our bodies are able to sin, but they are not made for or to be used for sin. Pretty clear? But then if not that, if that's not what our bodies were made for, then what are our bodies to be used for? If that's wrong, then what's right? Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So there's two things there. One: your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. That's the first. In 1 Corinthians 3, we learned that the Holy Spirit dwells within the body, of the church, corporately, so there is an indwelling of the Spirit in all of us together as a unit. And then in this verse, we learned that the Holy Spirit also resides within us, Christians, individually. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, what is going to come out of you? How about the fruit of the Spirit? Right? Your body will be used to pursue things such as, but maybe not limited to, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But also, here's a question. What are temples used for? What are temples Used for? The answer is worship. Worship. And we worship when we show the worth of the one we revere, even in our eating and drinking. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10. So, what are you made for? You were made for worship. I was made for worship, and God is in the temple. So let's use these temples to do what they were made to do, and to worship the God who resides within. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. And, second thing, you are not your own. (laughs) You were bought with a price So glorify God in your body. For this second explanation of what we're made to do, let's refer back up to the second half of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Our freedom means that we can now say no to sin when it tries to demand our service. But then what do we say yes to? Earlier in the sermon, I read to you a portion of Romans 6. Let me read you that and some more of that passage "...to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms, this is an illustration, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Eternal life. Christians, you are no longer a slave to sin you do not have to obey that master anymore because you have been purchased by another master. And we don't complain about this. We don't stomp our feet and say, I will have no master, thank you very much. If you had not been purchased by this new master, whose slave would you still be? And then also... This new master is good. Is good. Do you remember what the next verse in Romans 6, the one I didn't read yet? Verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, what does this new master give us? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our new master is good, and he is also our Savior. We were purchased We were paid for with a hefty price. Remember, we didn't qualify to be the servants of our new master before. Our sin disqualified us. But this God, who is our master, our Lord, and our Savior, became our disqualification, became our sin for us, and gifted us with his qualification, his righteousness, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the full penalty, the whole price of our sin. And when we become followers of Christ, we come under new ownership. What were our bodies made for? To serve our rightful master who purchased us with a very precious price, himself. The one who has lost in sin and dead in their trespasses and sin feels like they're running at full sprint when they are wholeheartedly obeying their master. We think, how could that be? How could they do that? What does the Christian do? When do we feel at full sprint? When do we have joy? When we are wholeheartedly obeying our master. That's how it works. Okay, To serve our rightful master. We were made for this. And we have been united with Christ and will rule and reign with Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. We share in his inheritance. This new master is good, isn't he? Our bodies are made for worship. Our bodies are made for service. And so Paul concludes the passage, so glorify God in your bodies. So listen to all this good stuff. We have been freed from our bondage to sin, to our old master. We have been saved from the consequences of serving our old master. We are being given the good consequences, the inheritance of the righteousness of our new master. Before we even finish the obedience, it's given to us. We were bought with the price. We are now in the service of the good master, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our bodies are temples made for worship, and God is in the temple. We are united to something bigger than ourselves. Those of us who are married, we're united to our spouses. All of us who have been redeemed, we are united together in Christ, and we have been called to love. Just as Christ sacrificially gave himself for us, for our benefit, and that even while we were still sinners, we are now freed and we are now able and called, as we were not before, to love God and love others. That's all here in this passage. And now, when we learn these things, when this is our thinking which feeds our desires, we should realize when we know who we are in Christ, and when we know whose we are in Christ. Then the sexual immorality, the gluttony, the insert whatever sin you might be struggling with here. Why do we have any business being involved in any of that? We don't serve that master anymore. We're free from that. Can't tell us what to do. We don't worship in that temple anymore. Those gods do nothing but destroy and kill. We belong to Jesus now. And He loves us. And He saved us. And He's giving us eternal life. So it is only right. And now it is our joy to serve Him and Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for showing your love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, we thank you for the freedom that was purchased through Christ's shed blood, through his suffering. We thank you that Christ's death satisfied every bit of penalty, every bit of wrath that we would deserve because of our old obedience to our old master, because of our sin. And God, I pray, help us to see you, to behold your glory and see that you are good and that you're not just a um, malevolent master. Master who's being selfish. But Lord, you've given us the very best thing you could ever give us, yourself. And may we walk forward with confidence in Christ. May we walk forward in joyful obedience. May we be who you're making us to be, remembering who we are because of your love and remembering whose we are because of Christ's blood. For your honor and your glory and praise, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.